everyone should be represented. Everyone, no one's better than me, and I'm no better than anyone else. The fact is, what we should be doing, we talked about the Supreme Court. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure we, in fact, get every representation. Not a joke. Not a joke. I pushed very hard for that. And Vice my President. Mother- that was Joe Biden speaking toward the end of a Democratic presidential debate last year on the eve of the South Carolina primary making one of the most consequential, if little noticed, commitments of his campaign, that he will make history when he has the chance by naming the first African-American woman to sit on the United States Supreme Court. But how did Biden come to make that pledge? A new book, Lucky, by journalists Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnas, reveal a fascinating backstage moment during the debate. Congressman James Clyburn, a.k.a. the Kingmaker, was set to endorse Biden but wanted a firm commitment on the Supreme Court issue. When he didn't hear it during the early part of the debate, he took matters into his own hand, went backstage during a commercial break, and confronted Biden directly. Make the pledge. Biden did, and the next morning, Clyburn makes his endorsement, almost single-handedly changing the trajectory of the campaign. It's one of the many revealing nuggets in Allen and Parnas' chronicle of how a candidate who a little more than a year ago was being written off as finished by much of the political class, lucked out, and with a little help from friends like Clyburn, became the 46th president of the United States. We'll talk to Allen on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. It seems so long ago, those uh, early months of the 2020 presidential campaign, a little more than a year ago, after Iowa, after New Hampshire, Biden is clobbered. In New Hampshire, he finishes fifth, gets zero delegates. He actually leaves New Hampshire before the results are in because he he and his campaign staff pretty much knew what the outcome was going to be. And the consensus among many is he was finished, including even some on Biden's own campaign. Including even some on this podcast. <laughs> yes. Right. So you, you talked about all of us on this podcast. <laughs> the the political class who uh, yeah. you know who said he was basically finished uh included uh, you and me. Right. We did a well, podcast. We were up there in New Hampshire. We were there. We did yeah. a podcast from was it the Doubletree Hotel um, yep. in Manchester, and we had our friend and old Newsweek colleague John Alter on. I, I went back and listened to that um, after reading the uh, Allen and Parnas book because uh, I just thought it'd be amusing to hear what what we were saying at the time. We said that, uh, and I'm not going to say who said this, but suffice it to say that uh, n- neither of us. Uh, were good prognosticators. We said that uh, <laughs> what happened to Biden uh, in New Hampshire was a colossal embarrassment, that it was pathetic. And then to his credit, uh, John Alter actually said that he thought there was a, a decent chance that Biden could go down to 
South Carolina and um, and end up with a mini comeback, although he said he was not going to get the nomination. Uh, we talked about him maybe eking out a win in South Carolina. Well, he did not eke out a win in South Carolina. He won decisively by 30 points, which gave him the rocket fuel to uh, – uh, to go go ahead and, and well, Super Tuesday came just a few days later. Win and, Super Tuesday, yeah, yeah. It's striking from uh, uh, I'm just looking at Lucky here, uh, the book which we'll be discussing in, in this episode. When they get to that moment in New Hampshire, they write retreat. We had to retreat to our base, one Biden aide said. That was South Carolina. Retreat was the right word. Biden had no money. No wins and no organization to speak of in Super Tuesday states. Even if he won in Nevada and South Carolina or both, there was no guarantee that he would be able to quickly stand up teams to take advantage of new momentum. And, you know, I remember 1992 and Bill Clinton comes back in New Hampshire and is called the comeback kid. Well, what Biden's comeback, you know, exceeds that of Bill Clinton by a factor of five. You Didn't know? Bill Clinton end up in third place in New Hampshire? Second yeah, or third well, place. They, that they was his comeback. He was b- before the actual voting, it looked like he was going to get wiped out between Jennifer Flowers and the draft and all the other controversies he was facing. So he didn't fare as badly as some thought he would. And that was the so-called comeback. But look, I mean, that's nothing compared to Biden's comeback. But the amazing thing is, it seems so long ago. This was pre-COVID. We, you and I, were actually up there mingling among hundreds of people who were uh, in the hotel bar that night. We were doing our uh, podcast from uh, a room just off the bar, and uh, you know, everybody and anybody was milling about. Uh, it was like old-style political campaigns and primary nights, and then all forgotten just a few weeks later when COVID hits, and nobody is doing any of that. Yeah. I mean, COVID changed everything for Biden in terms of um, the general election campaign, his race against against Trump. And uh, that is because of the way uh, Donald Trump disastrously handled the pandemic. And Biden was really the the antithesis, the opposite in terms of, you know, showing compassion and um, right. and, and competence. Um, but the book is called Lucky. And, you know, in, in, in some sense, Biden was lucky. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the, the old it was a national about, tragedy. Right? Yeah, I well, mean, he got he lucked out from a national tragedy that made Trump look awful. And, you know, one of the things that comes through from reading the book is just how confident the Trump people were pre-COVID about how they were going to crush whoever the Democratic nominee was. You know, the economy was booming. Unemployment was low. We were not in any uh, foreign wars that were a distraction on every front, um, despite his low popularity numbers, all the key indexes uh, looked very good for Donald Trump until COVID hit. You know, as as someone said, uh, some 
Seneca or some Roman philosopher said, uh, luck is the meeting of uh, preparation and opportunity. And, you know, the question is, can you take advantage of the opportunities that you get? And, you know, Biden has. And what's interesting is if he had just been lucky, uh, then I think, you know, we wouldn't necessarily expect him to have a good start of his presidency. Um, And he has. Uh, Now you could say he got lucky (laughs) because, uh, you know, the Democrats took back the Senate, those two races in, in in Georgia. But, you know, he's also been nimble in a lot of ways. And I think one of the most interesting things, and we'll talk to, to Jonathan Allen about this and see if you can see the seeds of it in the campaign, is how Biden ran his campaign versus how he is now governing. Because he ran his campaign and won uh, because he understood that the Democratic electorate um, was still fairly moderate. And, you know, his coalition was black voters and uh, white moderate Democratic voters. And the black voters were actually fairly moderate. Um, So he is now running, you know, much more as a progressive, just having passed COVID legislation, which was uh, probably the most progressive piece of legislation in a generation. It'll be fascinating to see um, how um, how all this plays out. Yeah, well, I think also the Democratic Party has moved left overall. I mean, certainly in the House, uh, where there's almost no sort of so-called moderate or centrist Democrats like you have, you know, the few in the Senate, Mansion and Cinema. You know, and part of that is the fallout from the post-election, you know, faux controversy about uh, fraud and that leading to the events of January 6th, which clearly infuriated Democrats across the board, but particularly members of Congress. And uh, they're angry and they have no tolerance for the Republicans who indulge Trump over the years. And so you have a a hardened political uh, dynamic out there of Democrats who are less willing to extend the olive branch for compromise and bipartisanship uh, that Biden had theoretically called for or had called for in his inauguration. And we're seeing the results. The White House is taking advantage of that political moment to try to press an agenda that likely goes beyond what um, they were thinking about during the campaign. And and they learned, and and Biden, who was in the White House for eight years with Barack Obama, learned that for, learned from the mistakes uh, that were made uh, during that presidency. That if they extend a hand, it's going to be greeted with a fist. And so um, they, you know, weren't going to make that mistake again. Yeah, and I'll say just one other uh, uh, way in which Biden, in some senses, got lucky. And uh, I'm reminded of this because just as we're taping, we got this new report, declassified report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence about foreign threats during the 2020 election, in which they make the point that the Russians were up to a lot of their old tricks that we saw in 2016, trying to influence the electorate through bots and trolls and using influence operators to uh, push the narrative that Biden was corrupt and in a way designed to take him down and help elect Trump. Well, of course, that ended up kind of playing into Biden's hand in a way, because 
A lot of what the Russians were pushing were allegations involving Hunter Biden and uh, dealings in Ukraine and China. And, and once it became known that the Russians were pushing this, it took the story away from whether the, there was something to these allegations or not. We still don't know. It tainted it. It tainted, And, and as a result, yes. uh, it did not get anywhere near the media coverage that it might have otherwise. Right. And we only learned after the election that Hunter Biden is, in fact, under criminal investigation by the Justice Department. And that is going to remain um, a cloud hanging over uh, the Justice Department and the Biden White House for some time until we get the results to see, you know, did Hunter Biden do something that was criminal and did it in any way relate to his business dealings, particularly in China. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, I had nothing to say in response to that. <laughs> right. All right. Well, anyway, on that note, let's talk about Lucky and also, you know, in a larger sense, political campaign books and uh, where they fit in in today's environment. So, we got Jonathan Allen waiting. Let's get to it. All right. We now have with us Jonathan Allen, um, one of the co-authors of Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Jonathan is the senior political analyst with NBC News Digital. Jonathan, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. I've always wanted to be a, a skullduggery, so <laughs> this is really a privilege. Will this make me a graduate of uh, Yale University's Skull and Bone Society at the end? <laughs> you know, you're the first person to draw that connection. Which but I we can't talk about it because it's a, it's a secret society. Yeah, right. Secret society. So broad strokes here. It occurred to me while reading your excellent book here, that the first major political campaign book was Making of the President 1960, 60 years ago, a little more than 60 years ago, uh, which was about the election of the youngest man ever elected president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. And now we've come full circle to Lucky, which is a campaign book about the oldest man ever elected president of the United States. And I guess my sort of question is, so much has changed uh, since 1960 uh, in the way uh, the world covers campaigns, pre-internet, pre-cable, pre-everything that gives us saturation coverage of political campaigns now. How much more difficult is it to write a campaign book today than it must have been for Teddy White to do so back in 1960? I was going to say, I would love to ask Teddy White about that. <laughs> He's no longer with us, of course. You know, I mean, obviously he pioneered this, this style, but I think that when you're doing it the first time, you can get some pretty easy access to the inner thinking of of candidates and the people around them, uh, because they don't know that they're supposed to be on message all the time. <laughs> so I, I think the challenge for me and Amy, and this is the second one we've done on a campaign, and the third book we've done overall, and the first one was about Hillary Clinton at the State Department and, and how she used that time to prepare for 2016. And the reason I say that is it's similar in nature. 
you know, the biggest challenge is that folks don't want to ever be off message and everything is so scripted these days. You know, there's more access in terms of more media around, but all that's done is, is push these politicians into, you know, further and further into their shells. And so, you know, what, what Amy and I do stylistically is we basically try to take readers behind the scenes of the moments that they remember from campaigns, you know, whether it's debates or, um, you know, primary nights and what was actually going on inside the room. And we do that by promising anonymity to sources, which is controversial sometimes, and uh, by telling them that none of it will come out until after the election so that they feel comfortable at the very least they're not going to end up capsizing their own campaign accidentally, which could happen. But Jonathan, you also do it, um, and this is a time-honored reporting tradition, by taking advantage of certain divisions and fissures that inevitably break out in a campaign. I'm thinking about, uh, you read a lot about the divide between, I think you call them the the poobahs and maybe the young guns. I can't remember what you're, uh, how you refer to the younger generation, but it, it's, it is kind of a fascinating divide, partly because, as Mike was saying, this was the oldest, uh, Biden is the oldest uh, presidential candidate, um, presidents of all time. Um, uh, but also, you know, we're at a moment of enormous uh, change in this country in terms of politics, in terms of, uh, you know, social media and, and all of those kinds of things. So talk a little bit about um, about some of those divisions that you were able to um, kind of pry open a little bit um, to get an, a deeper understanding of what was happening inside that campaign. I'm really glad you asked that question, because I think sometimes people think that you write about the divisions um, to be salacious or gossipy. And I mean, I can't tell you how much good stuff ends up on the cutting room floor because it doesn't reveal anything that's helpful for the reader. And it doesn't uh, cast light on what happened in the campaign or, you know, in this case, there is a Biden administration. So we think that the divisions that we look into are actually telling about the candidate, his operation, and what people may be able to see in the future about it. Internally, there's a division that we write about that you talk about the people around Joe Biden were largely older, very close to him, very, largely older and white and male, not older than Biden, because the, I think the only one older than Biden was Ted Kaufman, Ted Kaufman. Uh, his former chief of staff. The, gra- the grand poobah. The grand poobah, as we call him, right? Biden was told, you need to have more diversity on your team. You have to have more younger folks who are, who, and you have to have folks who are, are better at the mechanics of campaigns. I mean, some of these folks that have been advising Biden, you know, haven't been campaign operatives in a long time. I mean, even Anita Dunn, who's probably the closest bridge between the two, um, you know, her last campaign was 2012. That's that's an eon ago in terms of campaign politics. So Biden brings on some of these younger folks who are, in addition to being younger, more diverse, come from different sort of walks of the party. And there's tension between them. And in part, it's because the recommendations from the younger set who are more diverse are largely ignored. And we sort of go through some of the battles where they they win a little bit or feel like they're winning a little bit. But basically, Biden stays to, to the narrative that he and Mike Donilon came up with at the beginning of the campaign. Um, and any effort to move him off of that internally was very difficult. We, you know, in the general election, we write about this battle over defunding the police, which cr- shows sort of another layer or another uh, facet of the, the division within the campaign, which is after the primary, he hires Jen O'Malley Dillon, or after he's about to win the primary, he hires Jen O'Malley Dillon, who was Obama's 2012 deputy campaign manager, had been better or worse primary campaign manager. And he brings her in 
And she brings in a whole bunch of Obama people. She came in at the recommendation of Obama. She brings in Obama people who are also younger than the Biden crowd, but they weren't on the campaign during the primary. Many of them picked other horses like O'Malley Dillon did. Some of them are Black and Hispanic. And this fight over defunding the police sort of takes on a number of elements of the sort of basic divisions within the Biden orbit. And ultimately, he rejects the push to move left, you know, for lack of a better term. You know, he's not going to say defund the police, even though some of his aides are encouraging him to do that. In fact, he, he wants to put more money into local policing. He also, uh, you know, refuses to apologize for the crime bill. Some of the younger aides wanted him to do that. They felt like it was important to reach out to the black community. And he kind of stuck to where he is. So when we write about fights like that internally, there's a reason for it, which is so that people can sort of understand how this new president's operation actually operates. You said something. Let me just, uh, Mike, I just want a quick follow up here, which is which goes to the title of the book, Lucky. And you make the case that without an enormous amount of luck, he would not have won the presidency. Uh, but in hearing you talk and, and, and you say this in the book about how Biden kind of stuck to his guns. He had this kind of North Star that he and Donilon um, figured out in the beginning. You know, they were very disciplined about messaging. Discipline is not always a word that we associate with uh, Joe Biden. And I want to understand how how you kind of think of that on the one hand and, you know, the fates smiling on him being incredibly lucky, because I think you have a quote there. I think it was Branch Rickey who said that uh, luck is um the residue of, of design. And so is it luck in that sense uh, with Joe Biden? Yes. Um, in that sense, uh, in the sense that the harder you work, the luckier you get, in the sense that most successful endeavors are a combination of planning, execution, and some little magic dust. But the magic dust sort of appeared, and I mean, you know, call it what you want, you know, divine intervention, whatever. It appears repeatedly for Biden in ways that and in times when most candidates would not have been able to survive what they were up against. I mean, here's a guy who comes in fourth in Iowa uh, in the caucuses as a two-term former vice president of the United States. He doesn't have the backing of the former president. He doesn't have the backing of most of the rest of the Democratic establishment. Comes in fourth place. And because the results of the Iowa caucuses were delayed and nobody knew who won, Biden's political obituary doesn't get written. I mean, I cannot imagine if that gets reported on election night that half the stories, you know, half the stories the next day are Bernie Sanders won or people to judge one or whatever. And the other half are, oh, my God, Joe Biden's done. He gets into New Hampshire. He's got no money. His own aides are basically telling him that he's he's in such bad shape. He should refinance his house to fund the campaign if he wants to keep going, which the subtext of which is it's time to wrap it up. And he's like, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. I don't need money. We'll see what happens. You know, I mean, the the strength of Jim Clyburn's endorsement, you know, even a little bit less of a victory for Biden in South Carolina, and it's hard to consolidate the party. So yes, he works for all these things. He planned, or, or most of them plans for them. And then in the end, it all sort of breaks his way up to and including COVID. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to stop you with, with, with the Clyburn endorsement, because that was one of the more fascinating revelations in your book, about how exactly that came about and Clyburn pushing Biden to make that commitment to name an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. And there they are on the stage of the debate on the eve of the South Carolina primary, and Biden doesn't do it. So Clyburn takes matters into his own hand. Tell us the story of what happened there. 
So Clyburn gets up from his seat in the debate hall in the audience, and he makes a beeline for the exit. And the people around him, his friends, think, oh, he's a 79-year-old guy. He must really have to pee. You know, commercial break. He's getting out, coming back. Uh, but it turns out what he was doing is he's running backstage to go find Biden. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg comes up to say hello and Clyburn's, yeah, yeah, whatever, uh, and, and goes and finds Biden. He says, look, I told you that I wanted you to say that you were going to name a black woman to the Supreme Court. You haven't done it yet. You've had a bunch of opportunities. Don't you dare leave this stage without doing it. And in that moment, Clyburn has cut an endorsement ad already. He's told Biden he's going to endorse him. Politico has reported it, presumably leaked by the Biden people, that, that Clyburn will give an endorsement. And yet that endorsement has not been given yet. And here's Clyburn, who thinks enough of this promise that he has gone backstage to tell Biden, don't you dare leave the stage without doing it. And then the next day we see this endorsement, this huge heartfelt endorsement. The difference between that and Clyburn putting out a statement saying, I endorse Joe Biden, or just coming out and saying, hey, I'm with Joe Biden. I don't know how South Carolina is going to go. Instead, he comes out and he goes, we're going to win by 15 points or more. Joe Biden's my guy. My wife loved him. And you see this incredible groundswell for, for Biden. I mean, he'd been leading by 10 or 12 points in the polls heading into that moment in South Carolina. He ends up winning by about 30. Is that all Jim Clyburn? I don't know. But some of it is. Everybody seems to believe at least a little bit that, that Jim Clyburn's endorsement was powerful in pushing those numbers up. And just as an aside on that, you know, so much that happens in these campaigns and in these debates are trivial and forgotten and ultimately meaningless. But that's one that mattered. Didn't get a lot of attention at the time, but it's going to get a lot of attention as soon as Biden has an opportunity to name somebody in the Supreme Court. And um, it's just really interesting how it came about. We like that episode a lot, me and my co-author, Amy Pons, uh, because it shows you how politics works in a way. Like, it wasn't a quid pro quo, per se, using all my Latin phrases at once. But <laughs> <laughs> but there was a ton of pressure on Biden to do this from, from the guy who could help deliver him votes a few days later. And really, we go in later in the book, we go a little bit into why Jim Clyburn is such such an influential figure, not only in South Carolina, but in black majority congressional districts throughout the South, which are kind of the lifeblood of, of democratic primary politics. I mean, you can, and we talk about this in the book too, I don't want to get too, too into the nerdy math, but when you're thinking about delegate allocation, how candidates win delegates, there's an ability to run up the score in African-American majority districts and get a disproportionate number of delegates. And so that's why that's so important. And, you know, I think most people who don't pay very close attention say, oh, Jim Clyburn endorsed him. He's an important black politician. But What's going into that endorsement is also input, which is Clyburn is figuring out what's going on with black voters across the country um, and trying to make a determination about, you know, where Joe Biden stands and, and where he stands after that endorsement is better than where he stood before. Well, let's talk, Jonathan, about uh, the the biggest piece of divine intervention. You were beginning to talk about it as, as tragic as it was uh, and is, and that is COVID. And you quote Anita Dunn saying it's the uh, something that she would never say publicly. It's the best thing that ever happened to Joe Biden. Um, so how did the pandemic change um, the dynamics of the race? And, and how was uh, Joe Biden lucky when that happened? So in a couple of ways, and I, just to, to recall where Trump was going in, I mean, he's never been above water in approval ratings, but he's riding a, a pretty strong economy. He hasn't started new wars. 
his numbers haven't moved much up or down since since he started the presidency. In his campaign, as we report, they felt like in late February they were at their their best polling. You know, his polling looks a lot different than everybody else's polling, and the end result is always somewhere between his polling and everybody else's polling. So you can't discount entirely what he, his people are seeing inside. They have a better ability to poll their people than the Democrats do or independent pollsters do. So in late February, they're thinking they're in pretty good shape. Whether or not that's true it's, is debatable, or the degree to which it's true is debatable. When COVID happens, President Trump goes out and shows the very contrasts that Biden is trying to draw with him, that he lacks compassion, that he lacks character, that he lacks competence. He's standing there on a stage seemingly detached from the fact that people are dying. Only 50,000 are going to die, he says, only 50,000. I mean, you know, it's, it's very hard to imagine anybody else in politics getting to that point and having such a, a, an incredibly poor feel for human sentiment. So, you know, Trump's out there doing that. He's telling people to inject disinfectant, you know, <laughs> whatever set of things he says. And Biden, on the other hand, who is so given to saying the wrong thing, uh, is suddenly in a position where he's not leaving his house. There is a real reason for that, which is he's scared of getting the disease that's killing people in his age group and also scared of getting people around him infected if he travels. But what they realize is now Joe Biden's message can be very carefully controlled. And he was getting all kinds of advice about how he had to get back on the campaign trail and the Trump people were hammering him for staying in the basement. And his team looks at it and says, like, no, this is really good for us. Trump is out there making our point, and our guy is not out there messing up. Well, of course, and and Trump's big first foray getting out there in the campaign was a complete disaster. On That was the Tulsa rally, which... Uh, you know, is such a disaster that uh, uh, Trump deputizes uh, Jared Kushner to fire his campaign manager, Brad Parscale. And by the way, your account of that was was really fascinating for just picking up on your point about COVID and how off-putting Trump was to people who were really worried about the virus. This is where he makes the comments, you know, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people, you're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, uh, please. Basically acknowledging that any talk of COVID was counterproductive for his campaign. But of course, the real disaster there was like the crowd was anemic. Trump you know, erupts in fury. And then, as you point out, Trump doesn't have the guts, I'm quoting from you now, to fire anybody face to face, especially not his burly campaign manager is one of the most telling ironies of the mismatch between Trump's macho persona and his innate fear that manifested itself in paranoia and narcissistic self-preservation. Wow, that's really good writing, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So so Trump dispatches Jared Kushner to fire Parscale. Because <laughs> he doesn't have the guts to do it himself. Right. And of course, Trump and Kushner had signed off on everything that Parscale had done to set up that Tulsa rally that turned appears to have turned into a super spreader event. And, you know, here's Trump saying, everything's fine. I can go out here to Tulsa. And his own people are like, you know what? We're going to stay away from this event. Kushner goes to find Parscale and says, maybe you should take a, a secondary role in the campaign. You should step back a little. Parscale says, that's a fuck me from you. I'm not doing that. And Parscale's sitting there thinking to himself, 
I run all of the data and all of the, you know, basically all the campaign systems are on Brad Parscale's Amazon servers. And he's like, I could turn out the lights on this thing. And, you know, eventually um, when they do fire him, I guess a, a week or two later, uh, he goes through that again. He calls Carl Rove, says, what should I do? Rove's like, look, there's no benefit to leaving the campaign. Stay on the campaign. If they win, you were a good soldier. If they lose, it wasn't your fault. And so Parscale decides not to blow up the entire Trump campaign and pull the plug on the servers. Instead, he ended up blowing up himself, right? I mean, <laughs> But Jonathan, since we're talking about campaign managers um, who got fired, uh, you actually have a lot of reporting about Biden's campaign manager, Greg Schultz, uh, who gets fired, which um, the way it happened, I think, you know, might be surprising uh, to a lot of people. Um, Biden, who has this reputation for decency and compassion and how nice he is to people. And yet that was sort of brutal, too. It was. Um, Greg Schultz read that he had been replaced uh, in the pages of the New York Times. Um, it's possible that he got a heads up shortly before it uh, before it posted, you know, that there was some story going on. But he, even then, he was surprised at the details of, of what was happening in terms of uh, basically Anita Dunn taking over the campaign temporarily um, as an interim campaign manager. She was given responsibilities that he didn't expect. He had talked to Biden about Anita Dunn coming in to do you know, to basically manage the headquarters or help manage the headquarters. And Schultz had been like, yeah, that's great. I could, you know, I could use the extra hands and all of a sudden she's replacing him. But this happens in February. Biden had started making contact with Jen O'Malley Dillon, who ultimately comes in uh, behind Dunn to take over the campaign uh, in, in mid-March. He'd started to talk, talking to Jen O'Malley Dillon about it in like November. So there was this sort of slow silent coup going on inside the campaign where basically the Poobahs, the older set, decided that Schultz wasn't up to the job, which made him a very um, easy scapegoat for all of the things that were going wrong. Um, and some of them he may have been responsible for and others maybe not. But him getting to a point where he's basically reading about it in the New York Times, not having a long conversation with Biden about it, really goes against what most of what we know about Biden. And Biden heard an earful from people who were friendly to to Schultz, you know, people who had gotten along with him. The guy had been organizing Biden's politics for several years. And ultimately, he did something which I dare say Donald Trump probably would would not do, which is he apologizes to Schultz, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he says uh, he wants him to stand next to him at his next event. You know, Schultz, you know, continues to travel some with him in a way that like a former campaign manager in most circumstances was not. Brad Perskell was not traveling with Donald Trump after he got fired. So Schultz was kept in the tent um, and Biden made an effort to do that once he realized the sort of effect he had had on uh, with, with the sort of ugly replacement. So you mentioned before the tensions within the campaign between the progressives and the centrists on defunding the police and racial issues in which, you know, basically the centrists won out, uh, and that was more where Biden has always been. Yet, it seems that since he's taken office, 
the um, the progressives have been on the ascendant. Uh, the White House seems much more intent on placating the left, on moving towards an aggressive agenda on all sorts of uh, issues from H.R. 1 to ending the filibuster. Well, Biden's not there yet, but there's certainly a lot well, of talk the about that. COVID relief bill, which to is the, COVID the most relief bill, progressive pieces of legislation in our time. So how do you explain that? Where during the campaign, Biden was not taking the uh, progressive agenda, but now the White House seems to be doing so. It's a mix of things, Mike. I mean, number one, there is the uh, the sort of Lyndon Johnson effect of like, you know, when Lyndon Johnson was a young senator, he was a segregationist to his core, and he used that to, uh, you know, rise on the power of Southern senators to the majority leader job. And then he got that power and he passed the Civil Rights Act in 1957 through the Senate above the objections of his own people. Um, so I think there's a degree to which Biden is governing a little differently than he campaigned, that perhaps we're seeing a little bit more of his leftward tendencies than he campaigned on. Yeah, but usually it's the other way around. Usually. Uh, well, but usually you're not in a pandemic that's destroyed the economy. I mean, I think there was a pivot point at, uh, at, at, at a certain point where uh, you know, I think they realized that, um, the, I don't know where the, the build back better, uh, slogan came from, but, but that's what this was about. Right. But I also think and to your point in like the, the coalition Biden is dealing with to legislate right now is what can he get all 50 democratic senators and 218 out of the 220 democratic house members to agree upon. And most presidents are coming in and they're like with a, set, a house and Senate like this, it's usually what can you get a majority of Republicans in the Senate and all of the House Democrats to, to agree to, right? Because it, normally you're going to have to get at least 10 Republican Senate votes, which means a lot more of them have to essentially agree with you to get those people there. So uh, because they're, you know, the first piece of legislation um, was not filibusterable, he only really had to worry about the, you know, finding the, the sweet spot for Democrats. Um, I also think that he is, push back against the left on certain things. My view is it's not hard to get Democrats to agree to spend $2 trillion to put money in people's pockets. Like, I think that's what unifies the Democrats is they say, here's something that needs funding. Here's something that needs funding. And I, I don't mean to caricature them as a spending party, because I think we watched last year as four or $5 trillion in direct spending and another few trillion dollars in federal reserve maneuvers I think, exacerbated wealth disparities in this country. So to come back and put $2 trillion in directly is not that much money by comparison, and it has uh, perhaps a tempering of that wealth uh, gap exacerbation. I think that's an easy thing for Democrats to agree on. I think there are future things that are going to be harder, and we already saw he didn't get assaulted for it by his own party, but you know he let the minimum wage go pretty quickly. He has spent years defending the filibuster, and as a Delaware senator understands um, how that can bring strength to smaller states, you have not seen him erase student debt the way that the, the left would like him to do um, with executive action. Uh, we're watching an immigration crisis build on the border, and his, his White House is somewhat paralyzed by that because they don't want to anger the left, and at the same time, they don't want to try to go so far to the left that, that it hurts them with the moderates. How big of a crisis do you think this is for uh, the Biden folks? I think it's a big one. The basic read is there are more people coming, more unaccompanied children, because Donald Trump is no longer in office. But the Biden folks have not figured out what to do with them yet. 
it's a huge problem. And, and the problem, the underlying problem is that we don't have a process. Like our immigration process is broken. You can be as pro-refugee as, as possible and still believe that there should be a process that works. There should be a system that works. Um, that it shouldn't be people flooding across the border and seeking asylum and not being able to be processed in a, in a reasonable way and not having, um, you know, humanitarian uh, conditions to live in. But you use the word paralyzed, and it's, it seems like this administration can't even forcefully say we're going to enforce our border, our immigration laws and police the border. Yeah, they don't want to say that because it's not it's not acceptable for a lot of Democrats. Because it sounds Trumpian. Which is strange how that how that discussion has evolved over time. And I, I don't mean to get too far away from the book, but it's strange how that discussion has evolved because you again, I think you can be completely pro humanitarian aid, completely pro um, the United States taking in refugees and also people immigrating and you can be pro path to citizenship, all of those things and still believe that there should be an immigration system and, you know, and some sort some form of border. Well, but some in the Democratic Party do not really believe that and have made that clear. That's right, Mike. They, they, they don't. And, and I think that, you know, the Biden folks during the campaign, this was easy. They weren't going to put kids in cages. They weren't going to do what Trump was doing, but they didn't really think through what they would do in dealing with a rush of immigrants like we're seeing or, you know, people coming to the border. They caught the car, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And now they got to figure out what to do with it. The fallout from the post-election and Trump's ridiculous claims of election fraud and all the events that led to January 6th, it looked for a while like that was going to turn Trump into something of a pariah in respectable company. Yet here we are more than two months later, uh, and um, Trump seems very much still a factor in Republican Party politics. What's your sense of uh, Trump's future at this point? I think after the Capitol riots, you can define respectable company along the lines of who thinks that was okay. You know, if you think that was okay, you are not respectable company. The vast majority of the Republican Party is in disagreement with me on that, at least of the elected officials. I mean, the future of Donald Trump is he's the Republican, the front runner for the Republican nomination for president in 2024 until he isn't. You really think he, he's going to run again? I think the possibility of him running makes it harder to prosecute him effectively, which makes that good for him. I think holding on to the power and influence. I've never seen this before. I've never seen a, a defeated president. Uh, continue to dominate their party. I mean, usually the party throws them, you know, off the deep end <laughs> after they lose. I mean, you have to go back to what? Adlai Stevenson? I mean, <laughs> this is just so diff different. And But his hold on the Republican Party is real. So beyond people just agreeing with him, there's this fear that he's going to come after you if you're uh, an elected official um, and you're not completely on board. And, and it's real and it's palpable. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. You said you said it makes him if he runs, it would make him harder to prosecute. Are you talking about criminally prosecute? I am. Because, you know, the, the, the criminal prosecutions he faces are at the state level in New York and Georgia. I think that's the one to watch. I still think it's harder. Yeah. I think it's hard to prosecute somebody who's trying to run for office. I mean, it's not impossible, obviously. But I mean, at that level, I mean, what we see is powerful people get away with things in part because especially if they're people who run for office. It's hard for prosecutors to say, 
I'm going to be the one that says this person who might win can't run. Doesn't mean it won't happen. I just think it's a hard, I think it's a harder bar to clear. Jonathan, I want to ask you about um, how Biden is um, kind of managing doing the job of president as manager. In other words, um, the kind of White House he's put together, decision-making, organization. I mean, you studied that in the campaign, uh, and now you're seeing it play out now that he's been president for, you know, close to 60 days only. But what are you seeing about how he uh, is kind of running things? His, you know, when he was vice president, Obama was famous for, you know, running kind of academic seminars, taking a long time to make big decisions. Uh, It seems to me that Biden has actually been somewhat more decisive than Obama um, as as president. What what are your observations? He's he's had a long time to watch this job and think about what he would do in it um, and see what the failures of other presidents have been um, and perhaps learn some from their strengths. Um, You know, it seems pretty evident to me from the way he ran, aside from saying Obama, Biden all the time for, for the political benefit it gave him, um, certainly in the primary and a little bit in the general. He thought Barack Obama didn't do things right. <laughs> um, you know, we say in the book that the two men um, consider each other mentor and mentee, but it's not clear who, who, who the mentor is. <laughs> right. Um, you know, they're pretty big egos. But, what you know, I think what we're seeing that's a little bit different from the campaign is I think with the campaign, even though power is pretty tightly packed around him with these sort of older advisors, I think right now it's really plain uh, the chief of staff, the White House chief of staff, who has just a ton of authority. And, uh, you know, I think Biden does listen to a lot of voices, but most decisions are made below the presidential level. And one thing that Biden does seem to care about a lot is the process and how it's supposed to work. And the process is Every decision gets made unless there's disagreement and it needs to get kicked up to him. Um, you know, you see that with the National Security Council staff in, in a functioning administration. And so what I would say what we've seen so far is that the administration seems to be functioning the way that a government is, that an administration is supposed to. And the wheels will fall off of that during some crisis or another. But for the moment, they, they seem to be doing pretty well with it. Vice President Harris, she doesn't seem to have been as forceful a presence so far as I think a lot of us expected. What's your take? Biden keeps her around, which has the effect of keeping her happy and also making sure that she's never her own star. Um, So if someday he chooses to elevate her and tries to make her the next Democratic nominee, he's in position to do that because she's visibly been around him. But it also means she doesn't get to freelance. Yeah. Um, and, And I think that's the I think that will end up being very frustrating to her and the people around her. And within the next two years, you're going to have a lot of chatter about whether Biden's going to going to run again. And if he doesn't, whether he's going to tap her to run in his place. And I don't know. Biden tried to be president for 40 years. I'm not. A lot of people are sold on the idea that this is a one term presidency. I am not sold on the idea. He's just going to walk away from it. Right. Well, one one factor on Harris, by the way, I was thinking of it uh, just in the last couple of days. You know, she was such a big presence during the Kavanaugh hearings. Here we are now, the Cuomo uh, uh, problem facing the Democrats. And Harris has been completely silent on the issue. You have not heard her speak up at all. Uh, You know, if she was taking 
questions from reporters, I'm sure she would be hammered with questions given, you know, your track record with Kavanaugh and on these issues. How is it that you haven't spoken out and called for Cuomo to resign? If she was available to reporters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's the real double standard is politics is who's your friend, right? If, if somebody is seen as, as your friend, they could do a lot. Yeah. So, you know, Cuomo is a friend of the Biden administration. I don't think she's going to be out there freelancing. And, uh, you know, even if she wanted to, you know, this is pretty early in the administration. I think it would be a mistake for her to go out there without. Is Cuomo going to survive? I think he's going to. I think he's going to serve out his term. You do? Yeah, because I'm looking at poll numbers that say New Yorkers don't want him, don't want him to resign. You know, I, I I saw those too. On the other hand, you know, a lot will depend on how quickly this investigation that the attorney general is conducting goes on. But, you know, at the end of the day, is there any prospect that that investigation is going to come out with a report that says all these women are lying? No. And are making things up? Of course not. So, But they're buying know, them time. They're buying him some time, but the results of the investigation are going to inevitably be incredibly damning. And what does he do then? To me, the most—I mean, it's all damning. So I don't want to. Maybe I shouldn't get into degrees of damning, but the nursing home stuff. Yes, yeah. I mean, well, is pretty damning. It's pretty as damning well, too. But... Um, what we've seen from politicians who try to stick around, like it often works. Not always, <laughs> but it often works. And he doesn't well, have the pressure that most male politicians would have right now, which is a wife saying, stop embarrassing us. Stop embarrassing our family. Get out of it. He doesn't have that pressure. Uh, I just want to get one last question I have on Biden. Uh, A lot of uh, hand-wringing and whining among journalists, and not that it's not important, but uh, about the fact that Biden hasn't given a uh, press conference uh, since he's been in office. I think you I don't think you have to go back to like Dwight Eisenhower or something uh, when a president has taken this long before he's uh, done a full-blown press conference. Um, Why do you think uh, he hasn't done a press conference? And is there anything that you glean from the reporting that you did on on Biden during the campaign, which might help illuminate that? He succeeded when he was able to control his message, not allowing reporters to, you know, to ask him unexpected questions, allows him to control his message. Um, I think it's as simple as that. And also, you know, some people get frustrated with reporters and say, why are you whining about this? Why are you crying about not having access? And the the answer is because it's our job to ask these guys questions and put their feet to the fire, not to ask their deputy press secretary a question on background that's going to result in an email back statement uh, that was carefully vetted by 12 people. Like, we'd actually like to know what the president of the United States thinks on particular issues or which way he's going on particular issues. Just what we're supposed to do. Agreed. Yeah. Well, um, at some point he will have one. Um, and, uh, it's, um, likely to be more contentious than they want, but probably a lot less so than, it, than they were under, um, his predecessor. Yeah. I don't think it'll be that contentious. <laughs> I mean, I still think that there's a, there's a degree to which Biden is still enjoying a honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky how Joe Biden barely won the presidency. Jonathan, thanks for joining us and good luck with the book. Thank you both. 